Hello, and welcome to another episode of Our Lives in Medicine. Today's episode is Dr. Neelan Khan. She is a fourth-year dermatology resident in New York City who was redeployed from her residency to the front lines of the COVID crisis in New York. She spent several weeks in the COVID units, and this is her story as a frontline worker. You get to experience with her what it was like to walk into the unit on the first day and look at the craziness that was going on with all these infected patients. So it was a really interesting time. I really enjoyed our conversation and learned a lot about what it was like to be a frontline worker during the COVID outbreak. So if you're interested, have a listen. You'll learn a lot about that. You'll learn a lot about medicine. It's a great conversation. And if you enjoy the episode, please feel free to share it with someone else who would like it as well. Please like our Facebook page, Our Lives in Medicine. Follow us on Instagram at Our Lives in Medicine. And leave a comment, leave a like on Apple iTunes if that's where you listen. Unfortunately, the last little bit of the conversation got cut off. It was just her parting words. So luckily, no bits of wisdom were lost. But um, I just want to thank Dr. Khan for sharing her experience and for her time and dedication to the COVID crisis and keeping everyone that she could safe and alive. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Dr. Khan, for your work. And everyone have a great day. We are live with Dr. Khan. Uh, Dr. Khan, how's everything going for you? I'm doing well. Things are good. Good to hear. Good to hear. So we'll just jump right in. First question I have for you is, uh, where are you from? Like, what do you call hometown? So home for me is Memphis, Tennessee. Um, that is where I grew up for the majority of my life. Although originally I am Canadian, so that makes things a little complicated. And then um, my origin, my background of origin is Pakistani. So I, I like to think of myself as like a Pakistani Canadian Memphian. Okay. And I'd say that <laughs> those three things like kind of really sum up my identity in terms of where I'm from. <laughs> okay. Okay. Pakistani, Pakistani uh, Canadian Memphian. So it's like yes. a mixture of good, a lot of different cultures, a lot of good foods, um, a, lot of different, a lot of different weathers too, I guess. But yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. When did you move to Memphis? So I moved to Memphis when I was in the fourth grade. Oh, okay. So you're very young. Yes. Got you. Okay. And then let's see. So you grew up in Memphis, spent most of your life there, it sounds like. Um, and where did you go to undergrad? I went to undergrad at Vanderbilt University. Got you. Okay. So you still stayed in Tennessee. All right. And how was yes. everything? At, how was your time in Vanderbilt? I'd say Vanderbilt. Um, 
for me overall, it was a good experience. I was fortunate enough to have a full tuition scholarship when I went to Vanderbilt. And so that was a very big privilege um, in terms of, you know, not having to pay exorbitant amounts of, you know, college tuition while I was there. But um, I mean, I'd say there were some aspects of it that were really tough. I think being pre-med at a school like Vanderbilt, I'd say that, um, you know, while I had done really well in high school to a point where, you know, I was able to get a scholarship like that and go to Vanderbilt, I'd say overall my grades were not as, as, you know, perfect as I would have liked for them to have been while I was at Vanderbilt. But I think overall I was involved in a lot of organizations. I grew a lot as a person. So, you know, I'm happy I went there. I was grateful for the experience overall. Got you. Okay. And that's kind of uh, another thing I was going to ask is your kind of, how do you say, like portfolio when you graduated and you were applying to medical school? What kind of, Mm -hmm. what kind of some of the things that you were bringing with you, like research or um, community service or a combination of anything like that? What was kind of your portfolio? So my portfolio, I'd say overall, I I had majored in neuroscience. Um, I had minored in Islamic studies and... I had done some research, but I would say I, I had a hard time really feeling passionate about the research that I did. And so, you know, I hadn't really gotten any, you know, I'd say like prideworthy publications by the time that I was applying for medical school. It was just, you know, I had done some research, it was bench work. Um, I, I was involved in a lot of leadership. So I was president of the Interfaith Council at Vanderbilt. That was something that I loved doing. And aside from that, I forget, there was a couple of other organizations that I was involved in. And I'd say for me as a portfolio, it was really just, you know, trying to make as good grades as I could. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, having some leadership, I had done some community service, I had volunteered in a hospital. Those were things that had helped me kind of confirm the decision that I, I really wanted to go into medicine. And I'd say aside from that, that was pretty much it. Like, I think I kind of considered myself more of like the standard bread and butter type of applicant, not really exceptional, not really poor performing, just kind of a little more average when I applied. Okay, got you. And then you, did you apply kind of all over or did you kind of focus your um, applications? So my story is a little interesting because at the time, I had thought that I was just going to kind of go to my state school, which was, you know, University of Tennessee Medical School. And I, you know, I think for for any pre-meds who are going to be listening to this, I think this is like the biggest life learning lesson I ever had when I was going about this process. But um, I thought that I had kind of checked all of the boxes enough in terms of where my MCAT score was where my GPA was, where I was just slightly above the averages. And so I thought that like by the time I applied to med school, I kind of just targeted a couple of schools hoping that I was just going to get into my state school and go from there. But I think my biggest issue was I applied really late to medical school. Like I just, I don't know why at the time I pushed it off. I procrastinated. I had a lot of anxiety in doing it. And so I know they have when I when I had applied and I don't know if things have changed since then, but like there was that huge window from 
June until like October 15th of like mm-hmm. when you can submit like your primary application. Mm-hmm. And I was definitely on the later, later, like horrifically late end of turning <laughs> in my application to the point where the school itself, like you, the dean of University of Tennessee Medical School, who like, you know, knew me as an applicant, like my friends had already gotten in by the point when I applied. They basically threw me on the wait list and were just like, hey, like, you know, we like you as an applicant and we want you, but like, we basically have like given our seats away to like other applicants. And so, <laughs> yeah. like, we're going to put you on the wait list and we'll go from there. You know, maybe you'll get off. We hope you get off. And like, guess what? I did not get off the wait list. So I had to right. reapply. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's tough. You know, it's, one of the skill it's almost a skill getting into med school because you have to know, okay, here's my GPA, here's my MCAT, for example. You got to look at that spreadsheet and say, all right, where am I? You know, if I'm 15 points under their average acceptance, I probably can't apply there, you know, and things like that. It's a, it's a tough kind of puzzle. Um, it took me three times to get in. So I know. Yeah, you have to be really <laughs> smart about it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. You have to be really smart about how you apply. Absolutely. It's like a, it's like a puzzle. And I think, uh, you know, some people figure it out quicker than others. So the kudos to those people, you know, so that's good. And you applied second time and you got in, um, is my understanding? So, yes. But what I did was when I was kind of in this, like, you know, purgatory of wait list, will I get off? Will I not get off? That was when I really got motivated to kind of get in control of, what I was doing and what I wanted. And that's when I decided that there was um, a master's program at Georgetown that I had known a friend had done. And I guess at that point, I kind of almost realized that, you know, I grew up in Memphis. I stayed in Tennessee for the majority of my adult life. While I thought, you know, I had just wanted to go back to Memphis and go to med school there. Why don't I like take this detour, do this master's program, which the master's program that I did, um, it's at Georgetown, it's a master's in anatomy and physiology, but it's very, very rigorous. And it's rigorous in a way where you essentially take a lot of first year medical school classes along with medical students, even though you're a master's student. And you really basically like prove, not even to yourself, but to medical schools, like, you know, am I capable of doing well in that medical school environment? Environment. And I think for me, the biggest thing was I was already a little frustrated with how I hadn't fully applied myself at Vanderbilt and, you know, then applied on the right timeline and getting thrown onto this wait list. I felt like, you know, I really haven't reached my potential. And I just think that doing this master's program is going to give me that reset that I need to like tap into my ultimate self, which, you know, being fully disciplined, fully committed and, and, just targeting this one goal of trying to do my very best in what I considered kind of like my second chance to everyone, um, that that would kind of get me on the right track. So I made that decision. I actually moved to DC. I started my master's year program and I had just this like laser sharp focus of, I need to do my best and I need to prove to everyone that I can do this. And thankfully, I made the best grades that I had ever made in my entire life. 
I, you know, learned really great study skills. And by the end of my master's year, not only did I get into University of Tennessee Medical School, but then I also got into Georgetown Medical School. So by that point, I was like, you know, so appreciative of the acceptance that I had wanted, you know, first time around. But I think I had kind of almost just identified more with being in DC and some of the mentors that I had found at Georgetown that I just took advantage of that opportunity and then stayed there for med school. So it, it ended up being a big blessing in disguise. Yeah, absolutely. And I, that is a pretty cool story. I mean, like the it's very like lucky, not lucky, but just like good, good decisions. Once you kind of realized, Hey, you know, I gotta, I gotta buckle down and this is what I have to do. And then it ended up landing you at a really great spot. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a cool story. That's cool. And then, so once you started med school, how was, how was med school for you? So med school, I think because I had had that master's year it really set me up with the mindset and the mentality that I basically needed to just recreate and keep going. And, you know, what I learned about myself the most during that master's year, you know, naturally I'm a very social and bubbly person, um, but there's also things that I really, the goals that I want to achieve and, you know, the things that I wanted to set myself out to do, like those are also extremely important for me and required a level of just buckling down and almost shutting myself off from all of the things that kind of, you know, the distractions that we all deal with um, to really achieve what I wanted. So for example, like once I started medical school, I knew that the specialties that I liked were things like plastic surgery, maybe even dermatology at that time, And I know a lot of medical students, you know, initially they're kind of hesitant because, you know, they don't know what their step one score is going to be. They don't know if their grades are going to be good enough. And so people are hesitant to express that early on. I think for me, I had just set my sights on, I want to do as well as I can academically to where I can pick whatever specialty I want and be able to do it successfully. And so... I loved being at Georgetown Med School. Um, It it was a great experience and it got me to where I wanted. But I think the sacrifice that I made was I was very antisocial in medical school, not because I wanted to. I really wish I had made better friendships in medical school. But I know that if I had spent more time investing in those friendships in medical school, I would not have made the grades that I did and I would not have been able to become a dermatologist as I am now. And so for me, I at least I went into medical school having that understanding of how I function and kind of the balancing of the things that you want, the sacrifice, you know, that we all make for everyone who goes into medical school or wants to go to medical school. But for me, luckily, I I was able to have that perspective and like really just keep that focus, knowing that like this is a long game in terms of my life and what I want to accomplish. And that helped me stay focused and do what I what I felt like I needed to do. I think that's a awesome kind of message because, you know, pre-meds or even you know, maybe like a first year listening to that right now, it kind of tells them, hey, you know, if this is what, if you know what you want to do is something that requires maybe more of a sacrifice, more of a, uh, more of a, you know, higher caliber scores and things like that, then you have to put your head down and go for it. And I think the, the lesson of also just, 
just the goal of doing the absolute best you can, regardless of don't say I'm doing this to be an ophthalmologist or something, just saying, hey, I want to be the best I can be. I think that's a really good message. That's great. That's great. That's a great message. Yeah. And I would say that at some point, I really realized how much I, whether, because it was really between those two, like plastic surgery or dermatology, like I liked fields that were more aesthetically focused and the, I knew that if I wasn't able to make the grades to do what I wanted to do, that that was something that I could not like live the rest of my life with that regret inside of me. So that was what literally kept me from like, there would be like, this is so lame, but like, like class parties or even just like hanging out after class and bonding or just chit chatting with your classmates. It wasn't want to, I absolutely wanted to, but I knew that those things would give me like a level of FOMO (laughs) and Mm. just, you know, like (laughs) I would feel really guilty. No, but really, I mean, that was how I thought where I was just like, okay, let me just not even take into consideration like all the things that I want to be doing and like the really, you know, cool personalities, interesting people that exist within each medical school class. You know, it's a great combination of personalities. And, but for me, it was one of those things where I just, I knew myself well enough to where I just would lose sight of what my higher goal was. And so that was, I think that's the biggest struggle that any medical student has. Um, And so for me, that was kind of how I was able to do it. Right. Okay. Um, As far as kind of the environment at at your school went, you know, you hear some schools are really malignant and cutthroat and some schools are kind of just laid back. I mean, how would you say that, would you say that your kind of personality uh, or how would you say the environment lended to that or the environment was more kind of party or in between? How would you say the environment was at Georgetown? So I'd say overall it was, and it's changed since then, but we were on a graded system of letter grades and number grades. And so I think that definitely creates more of a competitive environment as opposed to just like pass fail systems. Right. Mm-hmm. I think and so. I think since then it might, it, I think it has changed, but at the time that did lend itself to just having that competitive environment. But I will say for myself, that competitive environment helped motivate me because I'd say without it, then I wasn't obsessively trying to learn every single thing that professor taught, knowing that there's going to be a test, it's going to be graded, and I am trying to do my best to get that A, you know? And I think for me, that actually helped me learn the material. And you have to think of it this way, right? Like for me as a physician now, speaking from Brooklyn, New York, who's a dermatology resident and has gotten deployed to COVID, I think I'm more grateful for every single test I took that forced me to learn the knowledge so well because I was trying to aim for a 100% A. That's actually some of the stuff that's stuck in my brain better than when it was like a pass-fail type of situation. So I was a little maybe lazier or learned just enough to get the pass per se, right? Because then that knowledge might not have stuck in my brain as well. And from that perspective, I I think a little dose of healthy competition can be good for for forcing you to really learn things, right? Mm -hmm. It's, Mm -hmm. there's, there's always a silver lining. So it was a competitive environment. 
I liked it. I thrived in it. But I know for other people, it, that can be very tough, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it's hit or miss. And it's it's unfortunate if you're the opposite end. But I guess maybe take that into consideration when you're accepting schools too, you know, as an yes, applicant. Yes, exactly. Because I will say there were other medical schools in our city that had more of that group learning mentality and and I think, yeah, the grading system that was different. And and I think, you know, there were certain people who really were cognizant of how the medical schools function and how they graded, uh, graded knowing that, look, I don't really thrive in this environment, so I'm going to pick this medical school over this other one, knowing that I just want to be at a place that I feel like allows me to be able to do my best. Right, right. Were your, um, were your lectures mandatory or were they voluntary um, attendance? They were voluntary attendance. And so, and I will say the attendance because that was right when they had started to lecture record and we had someone who used to take notes. And so um, the attendance wasn't always that great. <laughs> yeah, my school was uh, voluntary attendance for most classes and it would be, my class was 250 kids and if you did go to class, you'd be one of maybe 10 in the class. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I felt bad for the lecturers because, you know, they're esteemed professors and physicians and PhDs and, and things like that. But they would be they'd be teaching to like five people sometimes, especially if we were like a, on yeah. a test block. So um, I, I don't know. I think I, I personally was very thankful for that because there were some days I just was not about to be at an 8 a.m. class and be productive. So. <laughs> I think um, I think I'll, I'll take that. If I were making my own med school, I think I'd make most of the lectures voluntary. But it was good that some of them some of them were mandatory because I think some lecturers need an audience, especially like hands on things, labs, things like that. You need an audience, and you have to be there. You can't learn a lab virtually. So, but you know what's interesting? Like I'm surprised that medical education hasn't evolved in a way that gets past that like disconnect, you know, because what I'm starting to realize more and more is, you know, for the classes that say can very easily just, you know, you need to learn the information, you can do it via video streaming, and people can just kind of do it on their own time versus I do think for certain lecturers who were phenomenal in person, they were very engaging. Like if you went to their lecture and they would watching them speak and having them teach to you in person was so good that it just imprinted in your brain and it helped you study for the test and it made it easier for you to do well on the test if you attended their lecture in person. They always had more people attend, right? So you would hope that that kind of dynamic would maybe force certain professors to make their lectures more engaging or just teach in a way that, you know, medical students then realize like, hey, I'm going to be, it's going to be easier for me to study for this exam if I just force myself to go and listen to the lecture in person. But unfortunately, not all the lectures are that way. So <laughs> I, yeah, I, that's actually a really good point. I mean, it's kind of like a, it's an argument for the free market uh, within medical school specifically, at least, you know, if, if you're good, if your product is exactly. good, people will come. Yeah. I mean, I know I would. I mean, if I, if I would, my option was, Hey, if you go to this class that you're going to learn everything you need to know, but also you'll learn it well, I would definitely go. But some professors just stand there and like talk with their back to you. And I had one professor exactly. who still, I, I had one professor who still used the like, uh, 
what is it called like the screen projector like you remember in like elementary school where they you can <laughs> yeah. see their hand right he used that and that was my biochem professor so imagine trying to learn biochem on like a screen projector it was it was terrible and <laughs> it was it was tough so i think i absolutely agree with you i i i support free market medical school classes <laughs> yeah so, so yeah um what about um during school what were some of your favorite or least favorite classes I really liked anatomy and physiology a lot. I would say, you know, cadaver dissections, it can be a very polarizing experience for everyone. But I mean, that was something I really liked. I thought it was cool. Um, and beyond that, um, yeah, I would say those are my favorites that stand out right now. Okay. Okay. What about classes you were like, there's no way I'm going to do this as a career? You mean in terms of like like the um, the first two years or like even once I started like my rotations? Uh, both either either or. Like for me, I knew peds was off the table right away. <laughs> like second year, I was like, this is definitely <laughs> during the uh, academic portion. But um, yeah, anything like you kind of just immediately grasp you as this is definitely not my <laughs> my jam or anything like that. Well, I would say overall for me, it was something where. There wasn't really anything in particular that I had fully ruled out. I was I was actually very open to everything, but I approached all of medical school. I, I knew I had my favorites, you know, that I've already mentioned. But I think once I started rotations, you know, I really in my head, I was like, I need to put myself in the category of do I want to do an internal medicine specialty? Do I want to do a surgical specialty or do I want to do other and the mm -hmm. other was where I put, you know, dermatology or ophthalmology, even though ophthalm was surgical, but I mean, just more so, you know, do I want to be in the OR all day? Do I want to be a medicine person where I'm just more cognitively thinking about my patients, et cetera, or the third category. And during each rotation, at least my approach was, I kind of put myself in the shoes of if I was doing this, you know, what would it be like? What would I dislike? And then kind of by the end of the rotation, come to the conclusion of whether that specialty was for me or not for me. And I think there was a lot of things that I liked about a lot of different specialties. There was a lot of things I disliked about a lot of different specialties. And every time I really just kind of gauged it with, you know, what are the things that I want in life? What are my interests? What do I really think is going to match up with my personality, match up with my interests and essentially be a specialty that I like so much that the studying of it doesn't feel burdensome, you know, mm -hmm. where it's just like, like, like you love the specialty. So you can really see yourself doing it for the rest of your life and feel passionate about it and, and enjoy reading about it or doing research about it in a way that, you know, prior to, like I was mentioning my research in, in undergrad, I just kind of lukewarm, wasn't really that into it. So for me, finding that passion during medical school and the specialty that I was that passionate about was the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that's great advice to anyone coming up to, you know, try to approach your rotations as a learning experience, no matter what, even if you know for sure, like you don't want to do OB-GYN. I mean, you can still learn something from OB-GYN that will be beneficial down the road. Um, so yeah, I think that's definitely Absolutely. a good, good outlook. Yeah. And I'd say like at least my perspective, so I come from a medical family. So my dad is an interventional cardiologist and 
my sister was three years ahead of me. So she had already done medical school and she ended up doing internal medicine. So I, I feel like I already knew a lot about the medical specialties before going into medical school. But despite that, you know, for me, it was like very important to be open-minded and consider all of them specific to, like I said, my own personality and my own needs. But I think that one thing I tend to disagree with a lot, and I don't know if you've ever discussed this in your show before, but I started this whole process of, you know, matching up. It's almost like you try on personalities for yourself, try on specialties for yourself, right? I started that process first year of medical school. And I think sometimes when they tell medical students like, oh, don't worry about it, don't think about it, like just study, make good grades. And then once you start your rotations in third year, then you can figure it out. I think I did so much soul searching and kind of thinking and processing about the whole specialty decision making in those first two years of medical school that by the time I got to my third year rotations, I already had a sense of where I stood with a lot of specialties. And so then it was just kind of going through the actual rotations and kind of confirming what I thought I knew, but you don't really know until, you know, you're doing your OB-GYN rotation or you're doing your pediatrics rotation um, until you do the work, until you work with those colleagues, until you work with that patient population. That's when then you confirm what your beliefs may or may not be. And so I think for me, then that process of eliminating specialties or ruling in specialties became much easier versus I think for a lot of people in my class who maybe like they, they tried to avoid it and then they, they felt like the decision or the answer would just come to them at the end of their rotations. Well, guess what? Like halfway through their third year or even at the end of the third year, they still had no idea what they wanted. And they were just kind of like, you know, I didn't really fully fall in love with something. I'm still just as confused. And so for a lot of them, they just went, we're like, okay, let me just do medicine. Okay, let me just do surgery. And then, you know, I, I think it ends up working out for everyone overall. But I think that there was a lot of like last minute frustration, confusion, internal confliction with the fact that they thought that they were just going to have that aha moment during third year that didn't happen. And so for some, it might, but I think for a lot of people doing that legwork of trying to find out what you want in life and, and just doing all of that reflection during the first two years of medical school is extremely important. And it just makes it easier for you in third year to make that decision that then hopefully, you know, you're going to be satisfied with for the rest of your life. I 100% I agree with you. I think the sooner... I know this is probably going to be stress inducing to some people, but I think the sooner you can figure out what you want, the better, because if you want to do radiology or derm or things like that, for example, the sooner you know, the sooner you can start reaching out to faculty for advice and for research and for just overall mentorship and shadowing opportunities to get your foot in the door. I think if you kind of just go with the, you know, lackadaisical attitude of, oh, I'll figure it out eventually, you might figure it out, but then you're a year behind people who have already kind of been, you know, getting their foot in the door, getting their exposure, getting their research papers, getting their um, mentors in line, things like that. I think I think the sooner the better you can figure it out. Um, even if 
just doing research before school starts if you can. I mean, don't stress yourself out. Obviously, enjoy life. Take it easy. But really, like you said, soul search as soon as possible, I think, is is, is a good good advice because then you can tailor yourself from that point on. Yeah. And, ex- and it, what you're saying is 100% the most important thing because it's it's even if out of all the things that you just mentioned, you just do the soul searching, even that's enough. Because that's more than some people. Some people just put <laughs> yeah. the whole thing off, right? Like yeah. you don't even have to have necessarily done the the research or like, like you don't have to have done anything in that specialty. But you just the soul searching alone makes a really big difference. And then just making it easier for you to arrive at that decision, knowing that you took some time to just think about these things, even though it can cause some anxiety. You know, of course, if you haven't taken step one, you don't know how your grades are going to be. You know, it's it's tough to preemptively have those conversations with yourself in your head. But I think that, you know, you put so much effort to get into medical school. And I think all of the specialties, you know, they're so cool. Like each specialty has such a interesting culture it has such an interesting niche in terms of you know what they're expert in and what their field has to offer that i think giving them all consideration i I thought it was really fun to do and like you know i was mentioning earlier where you like try on each specialty for like a day or a week in your head or like go to all those interest group meetings or just kind of keep them in mind have an open mind but really like you were saying that soul searching of what you might anticipate is the best fit for you. It, it's really great to do. I, I, along with that, what you just kind of reminded me of something else too that I would recommend to others is, um, you know, first and second year, you know, even if you don't join all the different clubs and organizations that your school has to offer, go to some of the meetings. I mean, I, I was, I went to a couple anesthesiology club meetings, found those fascinating. I mean, I wasn't, anesthesia wasn't for me necessarily, but I really considered it at a point just from the meetings because the speakers were great. Um, radiology was interesting. Even pathology. I really liked the path club in my school. So I think um, that would be another thing to, as part of your soul searching, get out there and listen to other people talk about their specialty because you'll get a very candid um, story typically from a, a club meeting. So I think that's another good piece of advice, like you said, as part of the yes. soul searching. And even on that note, Everett, I I forgot to mention this whole portion, but there was there was a whole phase in the first year or two of medical school where I actually thought that I wanted to do general. Like when I was saying I wanted to do plastic surgery, I had thought, well, maybe I want to do general surgery. And I was very seriously considering that and planning on doing that. But I was slightly conflicted and not fully sure about whether I wanted to be a surgeon and commit to that surgery lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And it wasn't until I, I went, there was one specific meeting that I went to. It was a women in surgery club meeting. And they had female surgeons who were giving advice in terms of, you know, to women who are interested in surgery. And one of them got up there, and I will never forget this because it completely changed the trajectory of what I ended up doing with my entire life. Her exact words were, if there is any any specialty outside of surgery that you can see yourself doing, absolutely go for it because the lifestyle of a woman surgeon is very tough. And when you have 
those early 5 a.m. wake-ups trying to get to the OR or those really long cases or the really, you know, tough lifestyle, you will regret not having done another specialty if you could have done it. But if there is no other specialty you can ever see yourself doing and your true love is surgery and being in the OR and just being a surgeon, then absolutely go for it. And hearing that for me and hearing her say it in that way, it like the light bulb clicked and I sat there and I was like, wait, I like surgery a lot, but when, you know, I can like it as a medical student, that's very different than me being, you know, 45, 50 years old, having a family, having kids, having a very busier life of a lot of different types of responsibilities am I still going to love being a surgeon? And am I going to resent waking up at 5 a.m. to go into the OR at that time? Possibly. So then Mm -hmm. that really pushed me to say, hmm, maybe I should consider other specialties a little more. And then if I don't like them, then sure, surgery is my one true love. And that's going to give me that satisfaction knowing that that was for me. But once I started thinking of it that way, that's when I realized, hey, dermatology has a lot of procedures in it. It has little bits of surgery. Granted, they're outpatient surgeries, but I can still kind of get that surgery feel and get to do procedures, but not at the sacrifice of not having as much balance with family life or just not having, let's say, really tough hours in residency. You know, those are all things you have to consider. And and I can't believe it was just that one exact meeting that, like you were saying, go to as many meetings as you can because you never know whose advice is just fully going to resonate with you and make everything click in terms of what you want and what, what you what you might not want. Yeah, I mean, and not to mention most of those meetings have free food, and I know you know you can't really pass that up as a broke med student, but that's um that's really <laughs> important too. And it's, it's, you're absolutely right. I think for me, when I started school, I wanted to do trauma surgery, but then I started thinking, like you were saying, I mean, when I'm 50, am I still going to want to live that life? And I, I I didn't, that's all I changed. That's my plan now is sports med. Um, so it's, it's interesting. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think no matter what you go into, you have to take the consideration of you're going to work that job 20, 30, whatever, 40 years. Is it something you can sustain? So that's definitely a good point. Absolutely. Um, and we both have colleagues that I'm sure you know and I know that like when someone says something like that, their response is, there is absolutely nothing I would be doing with my life than waking up at 5 a.m. to go into that like incredible neurosurgery case that I absolutely love because I'm so passionate about it. And they live for that. Like they have such passion for their surgical specialties in a way that I have so much admiration for because I know the sacrifice that they make. I know the tough lifestyle that they have. I know, you know, kind of the sacrifices that they're making in terms of other aspects and they do it because it's, they just have a true love for their specialty. And so it's good that there are those people. And then there's just some other, you just, you really have to figure out what it is that you love. That's so important. Absolutely. I agree with that. And it's funny because I didn't, I didn't intend for this particular episode with you to kind of turn into a, like a undergrad pre-med, you know, M1 advice podcast, but it's kind of, I think this is definitely, <laughs> definitely good stuff for people coming up. Um, these are things I, I luckily was told, but 
you know, like you were saying, some colleagues, some classmates, unluckily, were not told this ahead of time. And so I think anyone listening, definitely take the time to study yourself, you know, because you're going to study a lot of stuff in school, but definitely know yourself. So um, I do, let's see, so maybe just a different question kind of to kind of focus more on your story. Um, you're a PGY4 now, you said. So how would you say you've kind of changed from, you know, you graduate med school, you're a couple weeks from med school graduation to starting residency to now. How would you say you've kind of transitioned as a person and as a doctor? So I would say the biggest transition is with each year, you start to feel more like the doctor that, you know, you you graduated from medical school with that degree, but it really takes time to gain that identity and start to figure out the type of doctor that you are and really start to take ownership of the decisions that you make as a physician, even while you're just a resident and just a trainee. And I think that that's one of the biggest transitions and growth that you see during residency because while you know i'm a pgy4 and everything that we do is under the supervision of being a resident i think it's really beautiful seeing yourself change you know i remember the first time when i started my intern year everybody remembers the first time they prescribe something as an intern and it Hmm. usually is always tylenol (laughs) And you toil over it and you're like, oh my gosh, this is my first prescription. Am I doing it right? Is this Tylenol going to do something or harm my patient? There's so much (laughs) emotion with that first prescription. And then it's, it's insane to think about that, you know, month to month and year to year, you start to really become that doctor who realizes they know what they're doing. They have the training to be doing what they're doing. Even if even if there's some things that you haven't seen, you know, that you've only read in a textbook, or let's say you don't know anything about, you learn what resources you need to lean on. You learn what colleagues or which attendings to ask when you need help. You you find a way to become that physician and that doctor and gain that confidence to where you you really start to care about your patients and see them as your patients and have that have that perspective of like I am a doctor, you know, it is my job to help these people get better and you know, I'm not doing this to pass a test or get a good grade or or get to the next stepping stone that we've all been going through, you know, since we were in high school. Um, but really, you you eventually get to a point where it's a really nice feeling to say, hey, there's nobody looking at me, you know, there's nobody who's double checking my work per se, but I'm literally just here with the education, the knowledge, the training, the degree, and the ability to help this person sitting in front of me who's my patient and the fact that I can do that makes you want to do a good job and I think that is one of the most beautiful things in medicine to eventually get to because it makes the whole sacrifice and difficult journey completely worth it when you get to that eventually hopefully everybody does <laughs> right. it's nice right Right. Absolutely. 
I mean, I can only imagine because you're, you know, on the doorstep of walking out of residency. I mean, I feel the same way even just as a medical student looking back from first year to starting third year rotations to, you know, my audition rotations during fourth year. I mean, it was just watching, kind of looking back and seeing yourself grow is incredible. And at the same time, all that growth, I am like terrified of starting residency in June. So <laughs> I'm sure... <laughs> A few months into it, I'll be fine. But like, like you said, I mean, that, that heavy responsibility, even just t talking about prescribing Tylenol, I kind of got like, oh, God, I got to prescribe Tylenol. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely looking forward to that growth. And like you said, just being able to look back and see yourself uh, as, a, as a changed person is, is really, is really great. Um, I did want to ask you as, you know, before the coronavirus craziness came about, did you interact with medical students much or even, you know, the younger residents as a, as a teaching role or did you kind of, were you kind of just mostly in a learning role only? Yeah. So we have a lot of medical students who actually rotate through our dermatology clinic and they're awesome to work with. I love having medical students in our clinic because it was always a variety of specialties that they wanted to go into some of them, you know, if they were going into primary care specialties, you know, we were able to target what we were teaching, you know, pointing out certain things when we see patients, knowing that, you know, these are the things that from a dermatology perspective are really important for someone going into primary care to really come away from this rotation with, because it's quite possible that that could be the only dermatology rotation that they end up doing. And so I would want for them to you know, have some kind of an understanding. So that was always really nice to do. And then, you know, we would get a lot of students who are interested in going into dermatology. And it's always a really, it's a pleasure to work with them because I think then eventually you see it as, you know, they're going to be my colleagues one day. Like I could potentially run into them as a conference. And so anything that I can do to help them, to teach them, to guide them, I... I've always enjoyed doing, and it's it's really nice having students, medical students, rotating students around because I do think now as a PGY4, um, there are some people in dermatology who were my medical students that have since matched and are now my colleagues, and it's it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, that is cool. That's awesome. Yeah, so I'm glad that you're able to kind of give back in your own way and help the other students on the way up. Um, do you think in the future you'd want to teach as well? I would hope so. I think that for dermatology, the setup really depends on, you know, what city you're in and private practice versus academia. And there's a lot of different roles that you can play. Um, but I think that I know I really like teaching. I like being around students. And so in some capacity, I know that, you know, ideally I would want to do private practice, but sometimes you can kind of fuse the two where you still maintain that relationship with the medical school or with the hospital and rotating students and, and find ways to give back. So absolutely. Okay. I think you would be a really fun preceptor to have. So I hope uh, future students get you as well, but congrats to the ones who already <laughs> had you. So that's, they're lucky. So that's cool. Thank you. Um, kind of on a different, to different topic. So you've come from a medical family and you've, you know, kind of led yourself down this road. Let's say though, you didn't go into medicine. What do you think you would be doing instead in life? If I didn't go into medicine, probably something in fashion. Ooh, okay. <laughs> okay. I, you know, because having gone into 
dermatology, I would say, you know, I've always been very visually focused and I, I like art. I like drawing. I like media, even social media. You know, I'm very expressive on social media. And I think that, I don't know. So a part of me is like, oh, could I have been a fashion designer? Could I have been someone who is, I just, I think something in that world would have been very fun. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. Interesting. That would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. (laughs) I definitely, um, fashion would be fun. I think, uh, I don't have the drawing skills, the handwriting or the kind of, that is not my type of creativity that I can do is is fashion. So I'm, (laughs) I'm definitely more of a, uh, consumer of fashion versus a producer. So someone's got to do it though. You know, someone's got to do it. (laughs) So that's cool. Um, let's see. I what before again I I want to get into the kind of your story as a as a deployed person against covid but one thing I wanted to ask is before that how was life living in New York coming from DC coming from Memphis how did you like living in New York I absolutely have enjoyed being a resident trainee in New York so much um it it's definitely tough at times, I think, compared to, you know, being a trainee in the cities like DC or Nashville or Memphis. I think New York is its own slew of, you know, complex healthcare system. But I think it's it trains physicians, it trains residents so well that anybody who trains in New York City, you come out of it a very strong doctor, no matter what the specialty is that you train in. So I was very excited to have that component of being a resident in New York City. And then secondly, I mean, it there is so much to do here. There's so much culture. It is such a life experience to have lived in New York City at some point in your life. So I've had a great time being here. I've had a great time training here. And I think while there are sometimes moments where I feel like I'm just this like Memphis girl from Tennessee, where I have no idea what I'm doing in New York City and I get very overwhelmed with the subway (laughs) system or things like that, um, I feel very blessed to be able to be here for my residency training. Awesome. I'm glad. I mean, I have several friends that live up there, like in Brooklyn and work on Wall Street, things like that. And I, I, I visit them a lot. And it's a crazy place. I mean, I I couldn't live there necessarily, but it's a crazy place. And it's really fun to visit. And uh, once the world opens back up, you'll have to take a trip to Brooklyn and go to uh, Grand Army. It's a, it's a bar in Brooklyn. I, I forget where exactly, but one of my best friends is one of like the head bartenders there. So I'll tell him you're coming and he'll hook you up. That'll be that'll be cool. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. Once I'm able to explore in Brooklyn again. Exactly. Once the world kind of opens back up and uh, people are out of their shell. So, I mean, granted, so given that, it would be a good way to transition into, you know, your kind of experience as a resident who got deployed into the COVID madness, especially particularly in New York. So if you want to talk about that, I'd love to hear that story. Yeah, so I mean, this was something that I'd say towards the end of February, you know, we had been reading about it and seeing everything that was going on kind of around the world and even on the West Coast at the time. But it really started becoming a reality in New York City, at least that I was aware of. And, you know, we were aware of just late February, early March. And 
I really just want to speak for my own perspective just because I think, you know, everybody is entitled to, you know, there's been a lot of anxieties, a lot of tensions, a lot of emotions that kind of have been brought to light, I think, for everyone during the COVID crisis. Um, but specifically for myself, I would say that I was very nervous when everything was starting to unfold because, you know, when you see the numbers that they're predicting, I already work within the healthcare system in New York City. I see the intricacies of, you know, certain level of baseline dysfunction that is is already there. You know, I see the patient population and I also see the fact that, you know, my paycheck comes from New York State every two weeks. <laughs> so... I had a sense of, you know, if this is really going to get as bad as they say, I need to start mentally preparing myself to be working outside of dermatology. And fortunately, within our institution, they had someone from who is like risk management, like pandemic management, start to spearhead those efforts. And they also were very clear in the communication that this is coming, this is going to be really difficult and very devastating, and we need all hands on deck. And at that point, I knew that, okay, you know, however this goes down, I started to just mentally prepare myself, knowing that, you know, if I'm needed, then this is what I'm going to be doing. Interesting. So you, I, we, when we talked yesterday, you were saying that they kind of presented it to you as a voluntary thing. You could leave your dermatology residency to go work, help out with the kind of with the COVID units, right? Yes, and and I think I was very fortunate in having that type of a setup because I do think you know, of course, based on the specialty it wasn't necessarily voluntary. And so for us, it was more of a logistical reason for, I mean, the hospitals had to be very algorithmic in how they deployed different specialties, how they deployed different residents, you know, they had volunteer attend attendings. They, you know, there was a lot of extra staff that had been hired in terms of nurses, PAs. So, I mean, there was a whole system at play there. But I think for me specifically within my system, it was presented on a voluntary basis initially. But I think part of the issue was, you know, in some circumstances, there was a potential that if nobody volunteered, then they would be redeploying, randomly picking people out of a hat, you know, mm. of course, taking out people who have reasons for being high risk, right? If there's immunodeficiencies, if there's, you know, certain medical histories, if, you know, they're at risk for exposing, you know, living with elderly grandparents, et cetera. So kind of once that list is made within certain specialties and certain departments, um, beyond that, you know, you have an understanding of, you know, either people volunteer or if there's not volunteers, then 
they, they need doctors. And so it's people are going to be deployed either way, whether they volunteer for it or they're forced into it. And I think I felt very grateful that initially because they had asked for volunteers, I felt that, you know, if this is something that I know I have no, you know, high risk comorbidities or reasons to not to keep me from volunteering. I had nobody at home to expose. My husband was already away in Minnesota at the time. You know, we didn't have any children. I don't live with grandparents or parents. I, I felt that I was one of the more able-bodied people with less risks to other people to where I had a moral and ethical obligation to absolutely go in and help not only the patients, but also my colleagues, you know, that just because I went into dermatology, I mean, there's no reason why seeing that not just ER, ICU, but all the other deployed specialties. I mean, at that point, the entire hospital had become a COVID unit. You know, it's not even just, it, it really was an all hands on deck situation. And so I think for me, when, when they needed as many doctors as they could get, I felt very humbled that I could go in and even help knowing that the situation was as difficult and tough as it was. That's, that's amazing. That's awesome. I mean, when you, t when you told me that yesterday, I was like, wow, that's just like really powerful. Um, yeah, I mean, and you know, as, as a person from the outside, you know, we would see news reports, things like that of kind of the madness or however they would kind of portray it especially particularly in New York and the city. So kind of from your perspective, what was it like, you know, the first day you walked in deployed to the COVID units, what did it look like? What was, what did you feel and what did you kind of see? So, so even before the first day, I will say, despite, you know, the strength of mind and heart, I felt like I had before my first day, I like cried the whole night. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, because you're like simultaneously terrified. Right. And the very week that I was deployed, we found out through a lot of forums and Reddit and this and that, that there, you know, were, were a couple of residents who had died from COVID. And oh, wow. yeah. And, and, and that's something where, you know, there's one that's been confirmed um, in Detroit and anybody, you know, can look that up. It's it's all over the media in terms of, you know, a resident who had passed away from COVID and, you know, certain speculations in New York City that, you know, it, it's hard to confirm. But point being, you hear of and this is something that it wasn't just here, you know, you, you read in what happened in Italy in other countries nurses, physicians, healthcare workers getting exposed, getting sick, and then dying, that that is a very real reality that you have to face, you know, mm -hmm. knowing that you're walking into a potentially hazardous, hazardous situation, whether or not you have perfect, perfect PPE or not, there's just always a risk. And so, right. you know, I cried the whole night before and I think my, my mom and my sister, while they were really great in empowering me and supporting me, I know they were just as terrified too. And, <laughs> and they, course, would say, yeah. they would say all of these really great things to, to give me strength, but 
later I found out they were crying just as much as I was. So, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> so, you know, like I said, it, it, you know, hindsight and the silver lining of things, I'm really glad that I have been able to help in the way that I did. But initially, like when I first started and even throughout the whole thing, there's just this insane existence of just these conflicting emotions at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when I walked in on my first day, um, you know, that was something where, you know, there's this nationwide PPE shortage. And so I had made sure that I had the PPE that I needed through like individual donations through friends, family, and, but still the whole process of even donning and doffing and working on that unit, being cognizant of the fact that all of the patients have COVID and they all need you, but you also have to protect yourself and be smart about how you go about things. I think that the moment that you show up that morning, it all becomes very real in a way that it, you know, I I started right when it was peaking in New York City, like right as the numbers were kind of getting the highest they had been like in the, unfortunately the deaths were in like the 700s when it got to 800, that was my first week. And when I got onto that, floor the all of the providers the healthcare providers the residents the attending the nurses you could see it on their faces everybody was destroyed Mm -hmm. because what they had seen and how things were going was just so difficult and and something that nobody has ever experienced or seen and you can't even prepare for and and I think now that it's gotten a little better, I can see the difference. But when I walked in that first day, there was a sense of just brokenness in everyone that you could feel. Wow. Uh, wow. That's I, I can only imagine. I mean, you coming in towards the peak and then others witnessing it approach the peak. I mean, that must have been difficult for everyone involved. I can only imagine. Um, so what, and so I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah. And, and I think that in, you know, you hit the ground running and you start doing everything that you can to help your colleagues, help patients, help the nurses. And the work became so meaningful because there was no job too small or just you you become you know the clerk the getting water doing like just there were so many things that needed to be done and it did not matter who did them and so it it once i was there i would say the need of all of the things that needed to be done kind of it takes over and you're almost able to kind of suppress your own fears a little bit, which I think balanced it out while, you know, I was definitely still trying to be smart and be safe because I think, and this is again, my personal perspective, but I think in doing this work, you have to have a level of humility 
and humility in, in knowing that we don't understand this disease yet. We don't understand this virus yet. And you can't go into it being, you know, a superhero or, or, or trying to act like, you know, you can't be, you might not be affected. I think having that terror and that fear inside of you that I could potentially be affected was what made me like very OCD and double check everything that I touched. And when I touched one thing and then cleaning or changing gloves or changing my gown or where I sat or the pen that I was using or you just being mindful of all of those things 24 seven, but then also trying to do the work at the same time, I think was kind of how all of my days went. So it was a lot. Yeah, that sounds like it could drive you drive you insane almost, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, so what were what what did the what did the patients look like on the unit? I mean, what, what what kind of conditions were they in? Was it kind of an array or was everyone critical or how how did the the patients look to you? So and this is an important part to my story, but the floor, the COVID unit that I worked on was originally a pediatrics floor. But once COVID started, there really were no pediatric patients anymore. And everything that was getting admitted to the hospital was COVID and predominantly adult COVID. And so what was a peds floor ended up becoming an overflow adult COVID floor. Okay. So our floor had a whole range of patients from, you know, I would say early thirties up to eighties. And it wasn't the ICU. So we didn't have anybody who was intubated or on a ventilator, but all of the patients that we had were on varying degrees of oxygen and various delivery of oxygen and varying degrees of severity in terms of, you know, what comorbidities they did or didn't have. And unfortunately, I mean, the patients who did well and the patients who didn't do well and some of the patients who died, I think this is what all of the hospitals and all the institutions are trying to figure out, but not really fully understanding this disease, this virus and how it works. I think the most difficult part of taking care of these patients is not really having those clear guidelines or indicators for being able to categorize people into, you know, some of the patients who I would say seemed as if they were doing well or were more mild, some of them died. And oh, wow. those seeing that as a resident, as a physician, as a healthcare provider, that was very difficult because I think that's not something that our healthcare system as a whole is used to at all because you know, for a majority of conditions, we're able to somewhat predict how people are going to do, right? Like we know 
which markers, which prognostic factors, which comorbidities might indicate a lower chance of survival versus other and kind of prepare ourselves, but also prepare the patient, prepare the family. I think in this situation, there's so many things we just don't understand yet, right? Right. So there was a component of that going on where, yes, you might have someone who had COVID and unfortunately had many other comorbidities who was also elderly, who was requiring lots of oxygen and continue to require lots of oxygen. And at a certain point starts to decompensate in a way that, you know, you had that conversation with family, you know, the wishes and you're able to make them as comfortable as possible, knowing that they're not doing well and they might not do well. But I think what I mentioned previously in terms of having people coming in who were on the younger side and didn't really have any comorbidities and who passed away very suddenly, you know, coded or just it, it's been very devastating. It's been really hard um, to see. And I think that's where, you know, there's tons of articles that are coming out in the medical research. There's news articles coming out. I mean, everybody is talking about how this is affecting different organ systems in ways that, you know, we're just trying to keep up with it. And, and we just, we still don't fully understand it. And, and I think that that was what made it the most difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, trying to, trying to tackle and defend against a, a disease that you don't even fully understand. That's, that's very frustrating. It's not like strep. Like we know everything about strep at this point, just about, you know, but, um, COVID is definitely a new beast. That's, that's tough. Yeah. And I think that for example, I mean, you know, for people who are keeping up on the COVID treatments or the COVID literature, it is just insane to think about the fact that there are no formal guidelines. There is no evidence-based randomized control trial, anything, right? right? So any treatments that any hospital is trying, I mean, everybody's really working in the dark, right? And, and that makes it very tough because you could be adopting what other hospitals are doing or quote unquote, you know, leading institutions or physicians in COVID are recommending or even what might make like physiologic sense based on kind of what we do know about this virus and try certain treatments or certain approaches or, you know, try the kitchen sink for yeah. certain patients who you really, you're willing to do everything and anything, but what anyone in medicine has an understanding of, there's always a risk and benefit. And you always want to try to do things that they do harm and they don't, they, they do, they, they cause a benefit and they don't cause more harm. Well, in this situation, not knowing and, and still wanting to try everything it was just, it's, it's a situation unlike any other. And I think one of my attendings summed it up beautifully where, you know, after we had rounded on our patients one day and, you know, there was a little bit of quiet and stability on our floor. 
and and she said you know i really now realize what it was like to practice like you know 19th century medicine like med- mm. like medicine prior to there being antibiotics like prior to there being an evidence-based approach to everything when you know people were just you know pulling leeches out or trying like just trying anything yeah. that they could try to see if they could help heal people or cure people because i think that in one sense that's what it feels like a little bit because we still just don't know yet right it it's tough too because you know it's a it's a virus typically as you obviously you know better than i do but as you know it's like the the virus usually it's well you have a virus go home and just wait it out but this isn't kind of that kind of thing i mean if you just go home and wait it out you might not make it it's um and like you were saying the uncertainty of it i mean i've been reading things where it's you know, resp- people are still dying on the respirator and maybe speculations that it's not an issue of respiration. It's more of an issue of um, diffusion. So it's like, you know, giving them breathing, them breathing for them is not going to solve the problem. Maybe they need some boost in oxygen or circulation. I mean, like you were saying, throwing the kitchen sink. I mean, I've seen postulations that, you know, erythropoietin boosters might help or, um, you know, anything to help diffusion versus respiration. And even looking at, you know, are people dying from ARDS or are they dying from pulmonary embolism? I mean, excuse me, pulmonary edema, but it's oh, just embolism. The, yes. Embolism. It, the, it, yep. It's the clotting right, okay. is what kind of the theories are more so saying recently that we think yeah, absolutely. We still don't yeah. know. I mean, yeah. And it's like, and all and the problem too is all those could be correct. Some people might have a diffusion issue and some might have a respiration issue. So you, it's just, it's, yeah. it's, um, it's a, it's a very, mysterious beast unfortunately but you know you're you're and there. I think the most I think the most devastating part of all of this is just the fact that not only have we as people who are within healthcare never in our lifetimes at least really dealt with something that we don't understand in this way that is causing or has caused so much mortality in this way all at once that overwhelms our healthcare systems. But I think on the flip side, from the patient standpoint, like from the family standpoint, I mean, it is so tough to be in that position where, you know, say you are someone who is not in medicine and if you get sick, or your family member gets sick, you know, the mentality is you go to the hospital and the doctors know how to take care of you. You know, the Mm -hmm. healthcare system, the nurses, they're able to kind of follow those algorithms or those guidelines or those protocols and, and get you better. And I think that this is like you were saying a whole different beast where we, nobody has it figured out yet. And so, it's just such a terrifying situation in which anybody to even get admitted to the hospital and well, everybody is making their best efforts to do what they think might be working and might be helping and, you know, what might make sense to adjust based on this patient and this person and their clinical status at the end of the day, it's just 
so far, I think there just there has been no guarantee in terms of how certain people do. And I think for the patients who didn't do well or for the families who lost someone, I mean, it's just, it's so tough. It's such a tough position to be in and grapple with the reality of, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and we are dealing with a virus and with a disease that science and medicine and our healthcare system is just trying and scrambling to catch up with and we haven't yet. Absolutely. I think the way you put it too is so true of people not in healthcare. I mean, even people in healthcare, they just, they don't understand why their loved ones not being cured, not being fixed, you know, and, and it's hard to explain that because even, you know, just influenza, people don't understand, you don't, you're not going to get antibiotics, you have the flu, you know, and so imagine taking that to something so much more mysterious and misunderstood. I mean, it's definitely got to be confusing for those families as well as the patients. So, um, that's tough. That's, I can only imagine, I mean, the, the environment, I think you painted a really good picture though, of the people, you know, seeing what they felt like. I mean, I could only imagine that kind of just the, the feeling of almost defeat, you know, you're trying so hard and what's, what's going to, what's going to work, you know, it's, that's gotta be, it's gotta be tough. How, yeah. How has it been with other staff, you know, as, as the physician, how has it been with um, nursing staff, PAs, and even just, you know, the other staff of, you know, food suppliers, stocking, things like that? How's everything, how's everyone else kind of been working together? So I will say that the one of the most beautiful aspects of this situation is that the the nurses who the travel nurses who came into our hospital the ones that i have met and directly worked with are phenomenal like i i have so much admiration and respect for the fact that it really takes people who are very strong of minds and heart and to to drop everything and travel to New York City to what they know is, you know, the epicenter of this pandemic and to come here and help, help these patients, help our hospitals, help the doctors. I think that the the nurses that I have met are from all these different cities, different personalities, different levels of training of what they were doing prior to COVID. But there is such a strength of character in every single one of them that I am so grateful that they were here. I know their patients are grateful for them. And they, I will say that, you know, going to medical school and being a resident and, you know, now being in this COVID situation, this might be something a little more controversial, but I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> I think I see a lot of different perspectives in terms of, you know, from the physician standpoint, I've seen, you know, a lot of blogs talking about, you know, all of the incentives or the things that were offered or provided for people to recruit a lot of the nurses to come to New York. And my personal perspective on the whole thing is, I mean, they deserve their weight in gold for the work that they are doing. Because mm-hmm. in any COVID unit, I truly believe 
the physicians, like the doctors, to a certain extent, while everybody is working on the front line and there is a certain level of risk and exposure and, you know, there have been losses on every front, nurses, residents, physicians, attending physicians who have gotten exposed and died, right? It's very sad. But what I see is on my floor, the things that are needed for, for, the, for the patients in terms of, you know, a patient who wears a diaper and, you know, when I am rounding and she needs to be changed, she needs to be wiped down. A patient is asking for something, you know, checking the, the little things. Those nurses are getting a bulk and majority of the exposure. I mean, the number of times they drawing blood, helping get things done that sometimes you get a sense of, you know, those nurses are going in there and doing the work of the very, very front line. And some of the physicians, you know, I, I, I don't think necessarily that's true for people who are directly like intubating or, you know, there's a variety of the roles that everybody played, but in some regards, some of the physicians are like the line behind the front line of the nurses, you know? So I felt very grateful and very blessed to have such strong, admirable nurses who were helping me and helping our unit function. Because, you know, every time I needed something done for a patient and I had to go and ask that nurse, I knew that I'm sending her to get potentially a certain level of exposure and you know so there was always a balance certain things that i felt comfortable that i could do that i would either do when i was rounding on the patients or when i knew i would be rounding on them again in the afternoon you know i would try to do certain things then um when i would be seeing my patient you know if they needed water or they needed juice like i would go and get it knowing that you know that's something that i can do i'm not going to ask someone else to do it for them and the hospital overall is understaffed, you know, there weren't as many people there. So everybody just had to help do everything. But specifically, I, I was really upset by the fact that, you know, just seeing some of the things that people were saying about the amount that nurses were being paid for this, just because I think for the level of risk that they were taking on, I mean, they absolutely deserved it. And so mm. I, I, I really have a lot of respect for them and I worked with them and it, it was really, I think some of the nurses that I've, I've now become friends with, I mean, you bond and you really form a camaraderie with the people that you worked with on your COVID unit in a way that I think, you know, it really hopefully will be lifelong because that's something that just, it's a bond that's always going to be there. Absolutely. You guys, I mean, went to war together basically you know that's yes. um that's amazing that's awesome um i did want to ask as far as your patients went you said you had a couple you know unfortunately did not make it did you have any that were maybe doing kind of poorly that you were witnessed to kind of turn back around and maybe even get to leave the hospital we had yeah we, we definitely had some patients who i would say we were very concerned about initially and, you know, they were on our close, close, close watch list. 
um, in terms of just knowing that their numbers and their oxygen saturation and their oxygen requirements um, were concerning to us. And, and when they started to get better and, and do well and, and got discharged from the hospital, there was a lot of happiness regarding those discharges. And I think every single discharge overall felt like a huge win. I mean, it was something that you hold it on, you held on to and cherished knowing that unfortunately that was not the case for other patients and knowing how devastating and difficult all of it was, um, I think those little wins became very important for everybody to keep going. I can only I can only imagine. I'm sure. Um, well, I'm glad that that was the, at least you know something you had to hold on to. You know, it wasn't just all terrible and despair. That's good that you know you were able to see some people flip it back around and kind of bounce back. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Yeah, and I'd say overall, you know, that was the perspective that like you have to have or at least is helpful to have in looking at, I know a lot of people don't like the phrase silver lining, you know, because <laughs> not that it's, you know, it just, I guess uh, people are very polarized by it. Some people hate it. Some people love it. I at least think that, you know, you recognize the difficulty, the horror, the loss, the insanity of all of it, but looking at those silver linings and being grateful and humble and being able to see the coexisting like terror and beauty of like humanity and life at the same time is extremely important you know it's not necessarily just one without the other it's always both and during my time on the covid unit i think while all of us saw a lot of very difficult, horrific things. We also, you know, were able to recognize, you know, when things did go well, um, you know, at least for myself, like I felt very, while I was very scared, I felt very humbled and honored that I even had the training or the ability to be able to like help these patients and help these people. And so right. that's what kept me going. Right. That's, that's really, that's a really, really good point. Um, I did want to ask, you know, I, we, we were discussing before the interview, you know, your, um, you know, beliefs in Islam and as a Muslim, uh, as a Muslim, do you think that and just also Canadian and Pakistani, do you think that your culture and kind of religious views influenced your decision to kind of join the fight or it influenced your, um, influenced your clin clinical style in any way, either with the COVID or just in general as a practitioner? So I will say my perspective on, on my faith and religion is, it's very unique to who I am in the sense that I know I had mentioned earlier, like I did a lot of interfaith work in college and part of being on the interfaith council, you know, I, I have a lot of experience with Islam, but I went to an Episcopal high school 
in Memphis and I have a lot of friends who are Jewish. I have a lot of friends who are Hindu or Sikh or even agnostic or atheist, right? So I've always kind of had a very multi-faith understanding of the world, um, which, you know, like I said, I, I enjoyed and did a lot of while I was specifically on an interfaith council. Um, I would say that all of that kind of translated into, you know, when I was, when I was on the COVID unit, I think, you know, you think of kind of, you really face your own mortality in a way that, you know, there's a possibility that I could have gotten sick. Any of my colleagues could have gotten sick and passed away doing what they were doing. Um, unfortunately, even just yesterday, we had a physician die in New York City who died from COVID and he had been taking care of COVID patients. So, wow. you know, that's a reality that, yeah, it's like, there aren't even words to, to say like how utterly devastating something like that is for the whole medical community, for our hospital. And, and that's just the reality that, that we're seeing that is, you know, he is not the only one. There are other hospitals and other physicians. And, and that's why this disease and the virus is just, it's so terrifying in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. But I will say that in some regards, I had just accepted that while I was very scared and, you know, nobody wants anything like that to happen to them or their family member, you know, if per se that were to happen, at least you go out kind of doing what I consider to be, you know, almost like a form of God's work, as you might call it, in just trying to help heal a patient, a person, a family member as best you can. And so I, I don't necessarily, I, I don't necessarily affiliate that perspective with one faith in particular, but I think that it's one of those things where it's like, if you have the blessing of the training and the ability as a physician to be able to help heal patients or help patients in their suffering, in their, in their medical illness, that that is, you know, and I think maybe that is a Muslim or Islamic kind of phrase, but I know it exists in other religions too, where, you know, God can kind of do his work to help mankind through physicians, through nurses, through, through any healthcare worker, healthcare provider, and not even just in that one sense, but anybody on that floor, whether they're from the kitchen, the house, the, the, the housekeeping staff who's cleaning the hospital, you know, every single person who is helping that patient or that that human being in trying to relieve their suffering and gain life like that's a blessing and so for me that definitely played a big role in in what i was doing because 
you try to keep that in mind and you know if something happens to you well you know at least i went out trying to do some good in this world absolutely yeah i mean there's uh there's worse causes that's for sure you know <laughs> yeah um that's definitely that's a really just a, like a really powerful thing to hear and i i assumed already anyone who would you know, continue working in the madness in New York City or anyone who would volunteer would kind of have that outlook in the first place. But it's really nice to just kind of hear it. And um, I'm sure others will appreciate it as well. I mean, I know it was just nice to hear and like motivational for me as well as a future, you know, coming into residency soon. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just great to hear that there's physicians like you out there. So that's awesome. Um, yeah. And I will say I this is not something like I went into it with any of this perspective at all you know it's something where like when you get dropped on a covid unit like you go back to that like terrified scared <laughs> intern pre-intern like medical student like <laughs> yeah. you know i had moments where i just i was like you feel like you're just like a teenager who knows nothing who is just terrified to their core right yeah <laughs> but in a certain perspective you grow up like overnight. I feel like I grew as a person, as a physician, as a family member, like in a day, in a week, just leagues beyond what I was. If you had had a conversation with me three and a half weeks ago. Wow. So... <laughs> For me, yeah, and and that is something that for me, you don't think at all that that's why you go into it, right? Because initially, all you're thinking is, oh my gosh, this is horrific. They need people. I'm able to help. I have an ethical and moral duty to help people, right? So, so you just go into it just trying to do some sort of good for patients, for your colleagues. Mm. And in retrospect, while I, I was able to help some people, I think, you know, you're not able, the, the, there's so many things beyond what you're even able to do, you know? And so that part of it is hard and difficult. But I think the silver lining of it, at least for me personally, you know, and everybody has their own perspective because for example, you know, I feel horrified by the fact that maybe there are some physicians who dealt with much higher numbers of death than I did, right? So I wasn't working in an ER, I wasn't working in an ICU. I I do think sometimes like the number of deaths that happen on your watch can really weigh on you and burn out certain physicians and certain providers in a way that's very scary. And I don't know if you have been keeping up with the news and the fact that there's, you know, a physician who committed suicide in North Carolina. Oh, really? Wow. And, mm -hmm. and, and she had been working in New York City at a hospital that was overburdened with COVID and saw a lot of death and a lot of just horrific things. And it really, it affects everybody, not just the doctors, the nurses, the whole healthcare system. 
being overwhelmed and destroyed in that way, it's really difficult. And I think, you know, dealing with those emotions, I've leaned on my friends a lot. I've leaned on my family a lot. I've even leaned on social media a lot. I know this sounds absurd, but even just sharing my journey and my difficulty in the middle of all of it, every little word of encouragement or prayer or support that I got from people, strangers, it meant a lot. It kept me going. It, it put me, you know, like I said, you just hold on to every little win, every positive thing that you can because what you're seeing otherwise is really hard to deal with. Mm -hmm. And so that became very important for me. And on the flip side, I think now that things have gotten thankfully a little better in terms of the numbers and the admissions and, you know, the capacity in our hospitals, we have a lot of people who have come in and, and just, I think, things are in place in a way that it's just, it's being managed and we can all breathe a little bit now. I think the silver lining of it for myself personally is the fact that what I have gained and how I have grown in just these last three and a half weeks is really something that I will carry with me for the rest of my life. You know, knowing that you saw something you never anticipated seeing you did something you never anticipated doing and it really just it humbles you and it reminds you that life is can be very difficult and really sad and really heartbreaking and and just you just you see a version of reality that i think it really puts things into perspective absolutely i mean yeah i don't think it could be said better than that. I mean, you've uh, you've been through something. You know, I think just being a physician in, in general is something that a lot of people, you know, it's a very small um, community and a lot of people don't experience a lot of the things many physicians experience. But even you've taken it a step further. I mean, not many people will have experienced a pandemic, you know, uh, especially like a one that puts the world on lockdown like that. So it's just um, it's nothing but admirable that you were there and, you know, took the opportunity to help. And I, I, I can't say enough about that. That's, that's amazing. So, you know, thank you for that. You know, it's definitely wasn't an easy choice, I'm sure. And we all, I'm sure we all agree in thanking you for that. So. Thank you. And thank you for, like I said, even contacting me and wanting to do this podcast and share my perspective, because I think overall, you know, the, the best thing that I think that anybody could do is like tell these stories, you know, all of the things that I learned, you know, when you were talking about like other medical students or rotating students, like that's something for people who didn't, weren't on the front lines and didn't experience that. It's just, it's very important to tell not even just the stories of the people who worked on the front line, but the stories of those patients, of their families, of the people, of the life that was lost, I think, you know, of course, everybody deals with loss and grief in different ways. But 
I think knowing, having worked on that unit, having worked with COVID, when you see the faces of those patients and you talk to them and you hear their stories, you hear their circumstances, you call their family members to update them. And, you know, you see that they're in the hospital by themselves, like that the circumstances became so extreme that, you know, no family members in the hospital and, and just to have people admitted to a hospital, terrified, knowing that they may or may not make it and not have their family at their side. Mm, yeah, For some that's of true. those patients who passed away and for those families who lost their loved one in that way by themselves, mm. it is just something that there's, it's so tragic on such a deep, in such a deep way that I really think the stories of those families, of those patients, like if the, if should those families choose to share the story of their ones, it's just, it's very important. You know, I, I don't, I have a visceral reaction to this entire situation being treated as just numbers and statistics of lives lost and, and people who died. I think that as many stories as we can have of the people who suffered from this, the families that were broken by this, the healthcare providers who dealt with this, it, it, it gives a certain level of respect and weight to this entire pandemic. And I think teaches lessons that we all need to hear and learn from and take with us and just kind of all grow as a society, as a generation in, in the post COVID world, but without, without just kind of compartmentalizing it away and forgetting it and, and moving on because it's just so difficult and painful and devastating that, you know, it, it's too negative and nobody wants to think about it. And it's just, it's too depressing. Like, I think that that perspective it, it really bothers me because I think that learning learning to kind of deal with those difficult emotions and allowing for them to coexist is extremely important. I Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think there's way too many lessons to be learned from this experience to just kind of shove it off once the world opens back up. Like you said, I think there's we definitely need to take a look at it and examine and learn from it because who's to say that this is the last time. So I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, usually I have other questions kind of just to get to know, you know, a little bit more about you, but I think honestly, I think that'd be the best way to end is with your discussion on your experience with COVID. Um, I mean, I think that's that's a very powerful. We just talked for like an hour about your experience on the front lines, and I think that's just very powerful. And I think that'd be a great way to wrap up if if you're okay with that. Of course. And like I said, I'm sorry. I tend to be so chatty, and I just kind of go <laughs> on and on. No. And so if I became too verbose or like you know, I I apologize. <laughs> no, let me let me tell you that makes for a great podcast guest. 
And so oh. um, at the end of every interview, I like to ask four questions um, to, the, to mm-hmm. the guest. So I'm going to ask and pretty much we'll just answer each one and then I'll go to the next one and then we'll get you out of here. All right. Okay. All right. So um, the first question is, has practicing medicine been what you expected? Yes. I will say that all of the difficulties of it and the reasons for which people advised me against it are totally true, (laughs) but all of the gratifying portions of it, the incredible aspects of it, the beauty of it are also so simultaneously true that I think it's exactly as I expected it to be. And I'm glad I was able to weigh both sides of it and make that decision for myself, knowing that I was going to be okay going into this field. So yes. Awesome. Awesome. I like that. Um, the next question is what are keys to success in medicine? Oh, that's a tough one. (laughs) (laughs) I would say, keys to success as like someone going into medicine as a practitioner you know this might be an odd way to answer that question but i would say being organized Mm -hmm. is a very underrated but huge key to success in medicine because i think that there is just so much to do and so much information so much to learn that if you can be organized and organized in your thoughts, in your approach, in your learning, even in your patient care, it really helps you be a good doctor and function well in medicine and do well. So I think that that's, that's one of the things that I realized is can definitely be the key in sometimes you doing a great job or unfortunately sometimes a sloppy job that, Mm. you know, you may or may not be satisfied with is just kind of being organized in, in the approach because there's a lot to do. It's a big responsibility. (laughs) Yeah. It's huge. Um, It's people's lives and livelihoods. Yeah. Any other ones, any other pearls you got? I would say just really loving what you do and being very passionate is extremely important because you know it's interesting because I think other jobs have a way of you know they can be your day job and you know you have your work time and your home time and maybe there can be those divisions but I do think in medicine just those divisions really aren't there. And I think sometimes it really is the matter is when life or death is at stake or when it's sickness or human disease or, you know, something that it could be as simple as let's say acne or a rash, you know, to, to one person, it might not seem as serious or intense, but to a patient, it's, it's their life. It's, it's, it can be so important to them that I think in addressing and and tackling all of these dis- different aspects of medicine in your specialty, it's very important to really just love what you do and be passionate about it because I think that makes it easier for it to just not 
ever really seem like work or feel as burdensome per se. It allows for, you know, an ability to somewhat combat the subtle burnout that you might feel because of, you know, a very difficult system to navigate in. I think the healthcare system, the layers of administrative complications that exist within the healthcare system make it really tough. But if you have a love for what you're doing and a passion for what you're doing, and you try to kind of tap into yourself of that in different ways, it, it really, I think it really helps you be the best doctor that you can be and, and just keep you going, keep you going. I think that's awesome. Yeah. So the next question is kind of along those same lines and it might be a similar answer, but now that you're a PGY4, you're almost, you're on the doorstep of getting out and being, you know, and attending, going to the next stages. What would be your advice to the people coming up? So maybe the pre-meds or the current medical students, or even the people, you know, uh, the nervous people getting ready to start residency or the current residents. This was advice that my sister actually gave me. And so I, I cannot take credit for it, but she was three years ahead of me. And she always kind of gave me this advice once I graduated from medical school. But even when I was in medical school, she said that, you know, try to study with the perspective that you are learning all of the things that are going to help you be a good doctor and try to learn as much of it as you can as well as you can because you have no idea at what point that information might become relevant mm. and you might be able to make a big difference because you just remembered it or you learned it well and and having that perspective is very important because I think sometimes, you know, as pre-meds or even medical students or even residents, you just get so bogged down endlessly studying information that sometimes feels very esoteric or just kind of studying to pass the test and then move on. But keeping in mind that all of this information is important information that might at some point be useful is always a really good perspective to have. And I say all of this knowing that, you know, who knew that for a dermatology resident three <laughs> months away for three months away from graduation, <laughs> the fact that I did one year of adult medicine as a prelim year where I spent a month in the ICU. I spent a month in the CCU. I did a palliative care rotation. I, you know, all of those skills that I gained in that one year that, you know, sometimes in your head, these are all just kind of requirements to get where we want to go, right? This, in order for you to do dermatology, you're just required to do a prelim year. And sometimes it just, it doesn't occur to you necessarily why those things are in place or why you're doing those things until say then a pandemic where all physicians and all <laughs> hands are needed to be on deck. And then, oh my God, I have never been more grateful 
not only for the fact that I had done an ICU rotation and I had done that adult medicine prelim year, but my ICU attending was known to be kind of the more intense, likes to kind of do some pimping, ask some questions. You really had to be prepared. There was like, there's like this blue ICU manual that everybody would be vigorously studying and learning because there was a test at the end of our ICU rotation. And also we just didn't want to embarrass ourselves when we, you know, were pimped by this attending on ICU rounds. Of course. Well, during that rotation, now you could think in a certain perspective or reality, I'm going into dermatology. Like some people might not think that it was as important to make sure that I needed to know ventilator settings or I needed to, you know, be know the answers to these questions for critical care patients if that's not even the specialty that I'm going into. But now in this situation, I feel so grateful for that attending. I feel grateful for that rotation. I feel grateful that I studied my butt to learn that blue ICU manual and do well on that test, knowing that, I mean, at that time, those critical care patients were my patients. I was their intern. I wanted to do a good job. I, I wanted to be able to take care of them for when they were not doing well. And I had no idea that I would be so grateful for those things that I studied, that I learned, that were taught to me by that attending, you know, two and a half, three years later. Wow. So I think just kind of, <laughs> it's insane, right? Yeah, so, definitely. <laughs> Having that perspective of, and 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 a flip side, you know, other people will say, well, it's important to learn the information outside of your specialty because, you know, sure, I'm not interested in pediatrics, but you're a physician, and when you know all of your friends or when people get to a stage in life when they start having children, your friends have kids, and you know they get a little viral illness here, a little rash here, any sort of problem, guess who they're going to ask? They're going to ask the closest <laughs> doctor that they can reach. And yep. that might be you. Yep. And so you, when you graduate from medical school and you get that degree as a doctor, being well-rounded in having an understanding of any specialty, a, a basic understanding, you know, enough to be somewhat proficient, but then also knowing what resources to go to, you know, whether it's up to go to the research and be a well-rounded physician who represents our specialty and can answer those questions, it's extremely important. And so I think that mentality can make you feel better when say like you're studying for step one or step two and just getting really frustrated over like feeling like you're memorizing information you might not necessarily use at any point because it could definitely come up yeah that's true that's definitely a frustration i've had and it's funny that i would have never thought that until this pandemic so like you said that's a good point that's a really make sure you study everything and Learn everything, at least to a basic extent, as, as you can. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And Everett, I will say, I know this isn't like an official question, but I, I, I this is a really important thing that I want to say. When we were getting, so I have my dermatology boards in July. And our dermatology boards are very hard. 
Like there is a lot of tiny minutiae and just details and memorization of things that honestly, a majority of dermatologists don't see and probably will never see. But when we were getting deployed or redeployed during this time, like for the last three and a half, four weeks, right? There was a part of me that, you know, for some of the residents who weren't working on COVID, a lot of our clinics were downbooked and are working for home. And what a lot of those people were doing was basically just studying for our dermatology boards, mm-hmm. right? And a part of me had to deal with that conflicting emotion of I'm going to lose three and a half to four weeks of study time for my boards that are in July because I'm going to be working on a COVID unit. Right. And it essentially came down to like, well, what is even the point of studying and memorizing and taking a test when the biggest test of any physician's life is potentially a pandemic where going in and doing what you can to try to help in whatever way you can, I think far supersedes me even trying to care about memorizing and studying for that test right now. And now that things have calmed down, great. I will sit down and learn and do what I need to do and hopefully be fine for my derm boards. But it really just puts things in perspective of why do we do all of this studying and take all of these tests? And there is a certain component of this is the biggest life's test or physician test that I ever dealt with in person. In All right. That was Dr. Neelan Khan. Unfortunately, the end of her recording farewell got cut off, but nothing, uh, from the actual story itself was lost. So thank you so much, Dr. Khan, for your dedication and volunteering to help protect those in need during the COVID crisis in New York. And thanks to everyone who has endured this time, everyone staying home to stay safe, everyone on the front lines and everyone in between. Uh, We really thank you. Thank you again for tuning in. And as always, to those in the game and those on their way up, keep grinding and don't let anyone take your dream away from you.
does it for the episode. Just want to give a quick shout out for the artists. The introduction, that song is called Barely Awake, and that's by It's G slash Grant Butler. You can find him on Instagram at underscore Grant underscore Butler and SoundCloud.com slash Grant underscore Butler, B-U-T-L-E-R. The outro, the song is called Following, and that's by Chicotes Beats. You can find him on Instagram at Chicotes Do. That's C-H-I-C-C-O-T-E-S-D-U-E. SoundCloud.com slash Chicotes Beats. Track Train, T-R-A-K-T-R-A-I-N dot com slash Chicotes Beats. And streaming on Spotify and all major platforms. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Have a great one.